Well, this morning is a slight change-up for the order of service. Normally, as you know, we have a, a message toward the end, and then a, a one more song usually, and that's the end of the service. Well, we'll have the message earlier in the, the service this week, and then more singing at the end. It's also known as Trick the Latecomers Sunday. Because <laughs> folks walk in and think, wait a minute, it, what's he doing up there? Uh, they look at the watch and they're confused. Well, they'll get it. Next week we'll, uh, we'll get back to Luke, our study in, in Luke's gospel. We took some time off at Christmas time to think about Christ's birth. And we've been taking time off of our Luke series uh, since Christmas to just talk about some miscellaneous things. One of the things I do as a, a pastor, as a preacher, once a year or so, I, I look at what we've covered, what, what issues have come up as we've gone through a series like Luke, and, and then I see things that we haven't talked about in a long time and, and try to figure out how to work them in. So last week we talked about suffering because I, I didn't feel like we've had a really good Suffering 101 message in a while, and, and this week I want to talk to you about singing. It's something that we do a lot of and something the Bible talks a lot of, but we don't give nearly enough thought and careful attention to doing it and to doing it well. So hopefully today it'll help us and we'll respond with singing after we hear from God's word. Now, music is powerful. You know that. You know it from your own experience. You might not know that communists knew that. One of the early communist strategies was to capture the music of the people and replace it with new songs of propaganda. They understood the power of music, especially the people's music. There's a whole book in our Bible, which is a song book. Psalms, a very large book of the Bible, right there in the middle, is devoted to singing. Angels sing in the Bible. God says to Job in Job 38, as he describes how he's creating the world, he says, the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy when I did that. Psalm 8 also talks about angels singing at God's creation, Luke chapter 2, right before the birth of Jesus, angels come to the shepherds, and after they announce Jesus' coming, what do they do? Praising God, it says. They were praising God and shouting, singing. And the new heaven and the new earth will sing with those angels. Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 describes the angels singing their loud, majestic, glorious praise. And then into chapter 5, it shows the saints there along with them. Before the throne. In the meantime, we sing with the church. And we sing with the church a lot. If you think just about time designated for singing on a Sunday morning, corporate worship. Sunday morning being kind of like the, the cornerstone of what we do as a church. It's not the only thing we do as a church by any means. But it's something of the, the rudder of what we do as a church. It's something of the most upward focused thing we do as a church. And it's second only to preaching. Singing is second only to preaching in the amount of time we give to it in our corporate worship on Sunday morning. In fact, singing, if, if I'm not mistaken, is the most mentioned action of God's people in the Bible. If we're talking about actions, things they're to do, things God tells them to do, and we're not talking about something ethereal or merely inward, but a do, an action verb, I think singing is the thing that God says more and more we should do in the Bible, the thing that gets repeated the most. And then in Ephesians 5, singing is rooted in some deep, profound stuff. 
Ephesians chapter 5, if you have a Bible. And let me start reading in verse 14. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and rise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And here's the singing part. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Well, before we get into singing, focusing on verse 19, I'd like us to back up and get a running start trying to see what Paul's doing here in Ephesians chapter 5. He's talking about Christian behavior, and he's describing what it means to be a new creation in Christ. He's describing our new identity now that we're his. So if you look at the earlier verses, which we didn't read, so let me mention a few. Verse 1, be imitators of God as beloved children. Because we're children, we're to be imitators. Verse 8, you were formerly in darkness, now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of the light. And verse 10, Paul says that we're trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. So he's laying out these principles of what it means to be in Christ. Things change, identity changes, and its responsibilities change. So then verses 14 through 18, which we read already, give some description to that imitation of God as his children, give some description to living as light, walking as children of the light. He says, verse 14, be awake. Verse 15, he says, be careful and be wise. Verse 16, he says, be diligent. Christians are to be diligent. In verse 17, they're, they're to be thoughtful and obedient. And then it culminates, I think, in verse 18, with this, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And from there, verses 18 to 21, notice this. There's only one command in verses 18 to 21. It's the, right at the beginning. Verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. That's a command. And then there are five, bear with me, participles. Anyone remember a participle? Yeah, moms, maybe. Uh, a lot of the guys here go, come on, dude, don't. Don't go to participles. Bear with me. This is the Bible. We need it. Participles are verbs that end in I-N-G, usually. It's that simple. So if, if I mentioned yard work, did yard work yesterday? I didn't. But I might say, I was raking. I was mowing. Mowing my rocks. I was, I was picking up. You see all the I-N-Gs? I was watering. I was planting. Yard work is the thing, and then these participles kind of amplify it. They kind of describe that yard work. So the five principles in verses 19 to 21 are these. First, speaking to one another. Speaking to one another specifically in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Secondly, singing, right there in verse 19. The third, making melody with our hearts. 
See, all I-N-G participles. Giving thanks is the fourth one in verse 20. And then the fifth is in verse 21. And a lot of the English translations don't show it as a participle. Mine says, be subject to one another in the fear of the Lord. No I-N-G. Really, in the Greek, it's subjecting yourself to each other. Five participles, all describing or all expressions of being filled with the Spirit. Paul builds to being filled with the Spirit, verses before, leading up to verse 18, and then he makes being filled with the Spirit the thing for the next several verses in these participles. But notice how many of the five participles are about singing. The first three for sure. Even though the first one says speaking, Paul's not saying speak the lyrics of a song to your home group. He's saying speak psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. He means sing. Three of the five are about singing. And really, in a sense, all of them are. Giving thanks is praise. I mean, read through the psalms and try to pick out the things that are about giving thanks. And they're not in song. Yeah, good luck. The last one, submitting ourselves to one another. How is that related to singing? Well, isn't that necessary for healthy corporate singing? Especially in our age that is, oh, so acutely aware of the personal preferences we have for music, for singing, and for the leading of singing in a church. I could go through a list of 50 things right now, and it would divide the church. You'd be on one side of the fence or another. Um, Music being played softly during prayer. I mean, basically, half of you hate that, and half of you love it. Oh, prayers are so much more meaningful with a soft guitar in the background. Hey, I, I like it too, and I like it when it's not. It's a preference thing, right? My point is this. We need to submit ourselves to one another. These are preferences, With this culture we live in, especially today with these acute personal preferences for not just the styles of music, but the styles of worship and how much a worship leader says in between songs. And and, and whether they they do a cappella on the last little chorus of one song. All those things. We need to submit ourselves to each other, submit our preferences to each other. So the point is that all these participles reflect something about singing and they come rooted in, springing from this command to be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit's filling results in singing and singing specifically that is thankful singing and singing that reflects the unity of God's people as they consider others more important than themselves. That's the filling of the Spirit. Now, let's narrow this to the focus of singing. I have seven things for us to consider about singing here in this passage, Ephesians 5. The first, sing in the Spirit. We've already talked about that connection between singing and Spirit, but let's pick at it a little bit more. What does Paul mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, in the Greek, the tense here tells us that it's continual. It's an ongoing need, an ongoing command. Christians are once given the Spirit. He indwells them as they come to faith, as they're regenerated, made new, as they become God's children in Christ. 
But there is an ongoing filling of the Spirit, awareness of the Spirit. Paul's essentially saying, know and keep knowing, experience and keep experiencing the presence of the Spirit in your life. Be more soaked up by the Spirit. Be more controlled by the Spirit. Be increasingly infused with the Spirit and the Spirit's work. The opposite, I think, is mentioned in chapter 4, verse 30, where Paul says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. So being filled with the Spirit is to know the Spirit, to experience the Spirit, holiness and communion with God, those sorts of things. Now, what's this connection or contrast in verse 18? Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Why did Paul pick drunkenness as the thing to contrast with spirit filling? Why didn't he say, don't get angry, but be filled with the Spirit? Don't be lazy, but be filled with the Spirit. Why drunkenness? Well, I think it's not just a contrast. I think there's also sort of a comparison going on. There's something similar, in a sense, between the Spirit's filling and drunkenness. Really? What would be similar? Well, you have to know something about drunkenness to think about this, or at least have seen drunkenness. Even on TV, that'll do. Drunks are often happy. I know not every drunk is the same. There's that difference between angry drunks and happy drunks. But, but drunks, apart from the angry drunks, are happy. They're loud. They're bold. They're opinionated. They don't come with new opinions. They just all of a sudden feel the liberty to say all their opinions. And some are loving you know, those loving drunks that get you in the headlock, man, I love you. Let's spend more time together. You know, that kind of thing. I know they're not all the same, but Martin Lloyd-Jones, a, a preacher 50 years ago in London, maybe the best preacher of the last century, he did a series on Ephesians 5, these verses here, basically like four per verse. And so he spent a lot of time on this, and he's the one that points out that I've seen that the Spirit's filling and drunkenness are both similar and different. We've seen how, in a sense, they could be similar, and you also see a hint of that, I think, in Acts chapter 2, where they're together again. Remember, the Spirit fills the disciples, and they go out preaching, and as they preach, people in the city say what? You're drunk. You are liquored up, and it's not even noon. Why, why'd they say that? Well, one interpretation is they were speaking in tongues, and so they didn't make any sense. I've never seen, I've never seen a drunk person either use a new language they didn't know before, one interpretation of tongues, or to see a drunk person just go, maybe, but usually it's alcohol plus something. Why did they think they were drunk, happy, loud, bold, opinionated, and loving, perhaps? So what's the difference between being spirit-filled and drunkenness? Well, according to Lloyd-Jones, he says that drunkenness brings happiness and loudness, boldness, conviction, love, by ignoring reality. You think of even 
the drunk that all of a sudden loves you? What's he doing? He's ignoring the fact that you guys have had all kinds of crap between each other, right? He's not thinking about it. He's, he's not wondering about it. He's, he's fine with it right now. He just loves you. He's ignoring reality in a sense. It's a shortcut to love. It's a shortcut to a relationship. But the Spirit's filling brings happiness and boldness and loudness and conviction and love, not by ignoring reality, but by seeing reality, by showing us the truest reality. Drunkenness, oddly enough, is a foil that is somehow similar to being spirit-filled and totally different. It's a knockoff version or worse because it's sin. It's a hopeless alternative. But Christians are to be filled with the Spirit. That's his point. Which means they're to be effusive in their joy and boldness and conviction and their love for others. And we're to express that effusive spirit filling in part with singing. Now, yes, the spirit brings self-control. Unlike drunkenness, out of control. The spirit brings self-control. But self-control doesn't mean that we're Stoics. It doesn't mean that we're Vulcans. Like Spock or, or droids. C-3PO. I've covered all the bases there with a Star Trek reference and a Star Wars reference. <laughs> the Spirit's filling, yes, of course, means self-control, but not the self-control that isn't courageous. Not the kind of, sorry, that isn't courageous. Not the kind of self-control that is timid. Not the kind of self-control that is always quiet, always reserved. Malachi 4.2 hints at that when God says the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And being healed, being righteous, you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. Drunk calves. Ryan, are you saying we should... We should let people come in who are not Christians and, and we should act in such a way that they might actually think, like Acts 2, they think we're drunk. No, of course not. But friend, we're about 10,000 miles away from that. Okay? We're, we're so worried about the abuse of emotion and the fake, trumped up, absurd expression of that emotion in physical ways that we stand 10,000 miles back and say that, could be, that cliff over there could be dangerous. The cliff could be dangerous. But get out of the prairie and see something of the grandeur of God and let it move you. Secondly, sing together. Sing in the Spirit Sing together. Verse 19 says, to one another. Remember, our singing is an expression of the spirit-wrought unity that we have. You see that in verse 21, that we should be subject to one another. You see it all through chapter 4, all through chapter 5, that we should be united in these things. We should be united together in Christ. 
And so we should sing together. Yes, sing to God in our corporate worship, but we are to sing to others. That's what it says. Singing to one another. How often do you think about that? That your singing is for others. You say, Ryan, that's not a blessing. That's a curse to others. I don't know. I don't know that it is. I think... I think the people around you want to hear that you sing these praises and love these praises even if it comes out of a weak vocal box, even tone-deaf ears hearing it. It doesn't say here, those who sing well should sing to the church. It's a universal command. Everyone who is filled with the Spirit should sing to others. You know that in the Psalms, we're to sing loudly, right? God is great, and he's greatly to be praised, and part of the great praise we we give to him is a greatness of volume. Yes, loudness should be for God, but loudness also should be for those around us. At some point, you could get to be obnoxious. But again, you're 10,000 miles away from it, most of you. When I sit in the back on a Sunday, I'm not preaching. I know it's quiet back there. It's hard to sing loud back there, right? Because you feel like you're doing a solo. Well, here's an option. You could sit up closer. You sit up I like the front row because no one hears me. No one can hear me. I don't care. The the bass, there's big subwoofers underneath the, the stage. Boom, they hit you. Yes. Loud praise to God, and I sing it to him, and occasionally others hear it, but, but I don't care. I, people have told me before, in fact, people who are up here on the stage with um, monitors in their ears, so they shouldn't be able to hear us. People have told me before, I can hear you, to me. No one has ever said, and it's beautiful. <laughs> but there is something about Praise resounding in a group of people. We're not alone with our CD praise in our car. We're together, singing together. And as we hear others, it's a crescendo of praise and joy. Not because it's always beautiful, but because it's a reflection of him and a reflection of changed lives that want to talk about him, sing to him. Let me put it this bluntly. If you say, I, I don't want to sing loudly, I don't want to sing, I, I, I'm not that good, I'm, I am tone deaf, I, I want to be shy about this and be really quiet. I don't want to be embarrassed by the person in front of me. Friend, it's not about you. Your praise is for God. Your praise is for others. Your praise is not for performance, and it's certainly not for your pride. All Christians are commanded to sing. Sing together. Thirdly, sing with instruction. Now we've got to go to Colossians 3.16 for this one. Look, look over, two books to the right, Colossians chapter 3, where we have a sister passage with Ephesians 5.19. The wording in parts is exactly the same between those two verses. But Colossians 3.16 gives us something unique. That singing is to be instructional. It says, let the word of Christ 
dwell richly within you. Notice that's similar to let the Spirit dwell richly within you. Let the Word of Christ dwell richly within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Our singing should teach and admonish. Which means we have to use songs that have some sort of instructional value to them. We need songs that are, at times, thick and thoughtful. Even if that's not how songs are written these days in the popular culture. We use music that sounds similar to things you hear in the radio, whether that's a Christian radio station or not. We're not people who are sold on using the instruments or lack thereof of the 16th century and those only. No, we have drums, we have guitars, but these things at some point come to an end. It's a cultural means by which we're praising God. We're, we're admitting that we're 21st century Americans who've heard of music in our day but it must also be instructional even if that's not how songs today are written it must also be instructional even if that means that our songs sometimes not a little cool but mostly cumbersome even if it means that sometimes the songs challenge us to keep our minds on what we're singing when you sing something like a mighty fortress is our god thick but we keep singing it why we keep singing it because it reflects something of the power and goodness and victory of our god in a way that ones today really really don't or not as well or maybe not as many do and so we'll put up with the old english we'll put up with the german translation to english if it means we sing something that that can be instructional that demands our our thoughts and that means that we should sing stuff that we have to explain to our kids. Do, Lord, oh, do, Lord, oh, do remember me is, is fine. But teach your kids thick, rich, truth-filled songs. You say, oh, they don't get it. I know, that's exactly the point. They don't get it yet. Teach them. Talk about it. Read to them, a mighty fortress is our God. Get to bulwark. What's a bulwark? Is that something Bullwinkle does? What's a bulwark? You don't know what it is, probably. But you go look it up. You teach it to your kids. And when you sing it, you know. You know what you sing. Singing should be with instruction. And you see this modeled, I think, in the Psalms with this one word, for. Let me show you one example. It's all over the Psalms. Here's one. Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. All that's a call to worship. Now here's the why. For the Lord is great and a great king above all gods. And from there it describes him even more. Psalm 96 says that we're to ascribe to the Lord in our praise. We're to have a reason for the great praise. The Lord is great. And he's greatly to be praised. You could almost, you could almost insert four. The Lord is great. Or rather, he's to be greatly praised for the Lord is great. There's a, a basis for it, a reason for it. It describes who he is and what he's done. And we're to ponder 
as we praise. Psalm 145 says that on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works I will meditate. And from there it goes on to how he'll praise. He'll shout for joy. He'll praise these works to the next generation. But it starts with meditation, pondering, chewing on the glorious splendor of your majesty. What is that? That's truth, that's theology, that's stuff that's at times bigger than our thoughts and bigger than our comprehension. But we can't sit idly by and wait to get zapped. We need to sing with instruction. Fourth, we need to sing in a variety of songs. Verse 19, you saw that threefold description. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, why did Paul give us three things here? Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Well, one view is that the psalms are Old Testament psalms. Simple enough. That the hymns are those good old hymns of the faith. And that the spiritual songs are like our modern day praise choruses. Well, okay, except hymns versus praise choruses, that's a really contemporary phenomenon. That's a recent phenomenon. They weren't having the worship debates in the first century that we are between hymn books and pews and theater seats and PowerPoint up on the screen for singing with our choruses. They didn't have that debate. That can't be the answer. Others say that these are three different words for psalms. That when he says psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, he really means psalms, psalms, and psalms. But wouldn't it be easier if Paul just said psalms? If he really wanted us to just sing psalms of the Old Testament, don't you think he would have said singing psalms one to another? And that's it. Others say that these are just three general synonyms for song. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, common ways of just describing songs. I think that's right. Except there is a difference between psalms in the Old Testament, I think that should be capital P psalms, and then whatever hymns and spiritual songs are. But I think Paul is at least doing this. He's talking about a breadth of kinds of songs. Some from the Old Testament psalms. And by the way, someday we as a church need to figure out how to actually sing psalms. Not songs that are peppered with a little bit of psalm language, but actually sing the songs of the psalms as they were actually written. That's going to mean a body of songwriters rising up and getting passionate about that. We're not there yet. Maybe someone else will come along and start writing great music to psalms. We haven't seen that so much yet, but, but I'm praying for that. I hope that that's the case. That aside... Psalms are something we sing. But some songs aren't psalms. Some are old and some are new and some are short and some are long. Some are simple and some are profound. And you see that in the psalms themselves. A variety of kinds of songs. Some are long like Psalm 119, but short like 117. Some are very personal like 63, and some are more corporate, like the songs of ascent there in the one-teens area. Some are repetitious, like Psalm 136, every verse, his love endures forever. Every verse, it says it. 
And some are not repetitious, but they're a historical record of what God has done, littered with calls to praise, like Psalm 78 is. By the way, you should get to know psalms like this. You should get to know an exultant psalm like Psalm 145. You should know where to go for a lament psalm, Psalm 13, among others. Get to know them. For one thing, there's a way to engage the singing with your Bible if you know parts of the Bible. Now, I don't know the Bible very well, not as well as I should, definitely not as well as others do. But as I grow in being familiar with the Bible, we sing certain themes, they stir in my mind, and I can't help but go rummaging through my Bible looking for where it is or the context around it. If you see me over here to the side in a Sunday morning during the singing, and I open my Bible, and I'm doing this while everyone else is singing, I'm not trying to think of the message. I'm not trying to go, oh boy, I better hurry up here and find some more good verses. If I was doing that, you would hear this in the sermon. And now here's another good verse. You know, just be random verses. I'm not doing that. What am I doing? I'm hearing a truth, seeing a truth on the screen, thinking on it. It's affecting my heart, and I want to go looking for it. This is the day the Lord has made will rejoice and be glad in it. I thought it was Psalm 89 recently, talking with Parker, and then I had to go looking. It was Psalm 118. You go looking, and you pretty soon have this communion with God and song and Bible. It's sweet. Which leads to this last thing. I'm sorry, not last. Don't get your holds up. (laughs) This fifth thing here. A few more to go, but they'll be quick. Sing to the Lord. That's the fifth thing. Sing to the Lord. I know it's a given, but we've talked about singing about the Lord. We've talked about singing to others, but let's not miss that it is to the Lord. And if it's to the Lord, then this is an intimate communion with the God of the universe that can only happen through Jesus Christ, his blood and righteousness. It's a blood-bought privilege to sing. And as we sing... It's as if either heaven comes down and encompasses us or we're caught up to the gates of heaven, to the throne room of God where we say to him that he's great. We say it to him, which means that it must be consciously to him. If this is something like a prayer put in poetic, musical language, then it has to be thoughtfully and carefully to him. The third of the Ten Commandments is that you not take the name of the Lord in vain. I think for most of us, we, we immediately think that means no GD. Don't just loosely say, oh, God, you must be busy this week. And, you know, you just say it in passing. To take the Lord's name in vain means to make it empty. And those things are taking it, making it empty. But don't we also make it empty when we sing that great name and we don't think on what it is, who it is, what he's done, what it means. When we sing Jesus, we say that name and we tune out, we're someplace else. We're thinking about people around us, we're looking down at our shoes, we're thinking perhaps about lunch. It's to him. Sing to him. Sixth, sing from the heart. 
It says in verse 19, singing and making melody with your heart. What's that language of making melody with your heart? If melody is the tune of a song, how's a heart making a melody? You might say, God puts the melody in the heart, and then the songwriter goes, mm, and writes on these notes, or plays it on the piano or his keyboard, and he says, the Lord gave me this melody. Yeah, maybe, but that's not what Paul's saying here. He's saying singing and making melody with hearts. It's kind of a play on words. He's saying there are two instruments going on. One is the voice that sings. The other is the heart that makes its melody through cherishing, through being affected. That as we sing, hearts are an instrument with their own melody responding to God. This is what Jesus told the woman at the well in John chapter 4. He says, true worship is what? What are the two things? Spirit and truth. You could spend a lot of time on what those mean, but generally I think, I think Jesus is getting at the fact that true worship is head and heart. It's in our minds and it's in our souls. It's to be pondered and it's to be felt, you could say. And it's not that there are two different kinds of worship, like there's head worship, and then there's this other kind that, you know, others have, and it's heart worship. They don't think, they just feel. No, he says true worship is spirit and truth worship. So the progression should go something like this. Truth comes to the, to the mind, and the mind chews on it. It churns it over it. It considers it. Some do it deeper than others, but all must do it. They must evaluate and take in and, and meditate upon what they're hearing. But it doesn't stay there. It, it goes down to the heart, and sometimes you have to push it down to the heart, right? So that it's not just theory. It's not just like math facts. It goes to the heart, and there the heart heats it up, and there's a boil that happens there. There's a fire, hopefully, that happens there. And the boiling needs release. That's singing. Singing is the release of worship. Lifting hands like the Psalms say. This is an expression of what is happening in head and heart. It seeks release. I know not everyone demonstrates that release in the same way. But some of you think it's impossible to do something outward other than sing. And yet, you might be a Vikings fan... Grandpa Favre might win today. <laughs> and imagine it's, it's the last play of the game. It's tied or they're down by five or something. And it, one second left and Favre throws 60 yards into the touch, into the end zone, and they win. You're a Vikings fan. Do you go, that registered in my brain. Check. What's next? No. Popcorn goes flying. You start yelling. You grab the kids. The three-year-old's freaking out. You're going, yeah, yeah. What happened? What happened? They don't know. <laughs> or maybe that's like the older guy analogy here. But Maybe let's use a, a 20-something thing. You, you go and you listen to a band and you like them. 
You go and listen to a band, you like them, you do something, right? Usually it's this. If you've never been to a, a club or something to hear a band, this is what they do. It's really loud and they just go, all right, do that on Sunday morning. Just nod your head. Tell your muscles that you're saved and tell them to move a little. So we have truth, we have head, we have heart, we have the release of that in singing. That's really nice, but it doesn't happen too often, does it? And yet God commands certain emotions from us. Matthew 15, quoting Isaiah, Jesus said, These people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. Psalm 37, verse 4, God says, delight yourself in the Lord. We think that emotions are uncontrollable. We say things like, oh, he makes me so much, so mad. He makes me mad. And we mean he has done something that it's not my fault that I'm mad. It's his fault for being a jerk. He made me mad. I can't control my emotions. But God tells us to. Even though it's hard. He tells us in Psalm 34, verse 8, to taste and see the Lord is good. So Jonathan Edwards believed that it was his duty as a pastor to raise the affections of his hearers, he said, as high as he possibly can, as long as they are affected with nothing but the truth. So no gimmicks, no staging, but Not stoicism either. Preaching truth for the purpose of their affections being raised to the highest possible level they can. That means that we have a great responsibility every Sunday morning to get our souls happy in God. And it's usually work. It it even sometimes feels impossible, but we must seek it without pursuing that we're no different than those that Jesus said, they honor me at the lips, but the hearts are far from me. Now, let me, let me give you some hope. It sounds like you've worshipped God twice in your whole life, about now, perhaps. John Piper gives us some great advice in his book, Desiring God, and says there are three levels or three ways in which we glorify God. The first is the ideal. It's when we feel unencumbered joy in, in who God is in what he's done. But there's also a lower level because that doesn't happen all the time. Secondly, it's when we do not feel unencumbered joy, but rather we long and desire for that unencumbered joy that we've known, we've tasted of before. And then there's a third level. Even lower still, but still glorifying God. When we don't feel any longing for him. We don't feel anything. And we pray. We pray to ask for his help. And we repent that we don't feel it. Knowing that we disobey him as we do that. He already knows that you disobey him. He already knows you don't feel it. But tell him. Repent. Ask for his forgiveness. Ask for his help. So singing is the expression of the worship that happens in head and heart, but it's also the means by which we actually get 
to worship in head and heart. It's both. Singing is a way of stirring up our thoughts, stirring up our affections. So I'm not saying, don't sing, you hypocrites, unless you feel it. No, you have to sing when you don't feel it. It's God, God's ordained means that perhaps you start to feel it. He puts song and poetry together with truth in the singing often stirs minds and stirs hearts and hopefully leads that expression of worship that's happened in the heart and the mind. And this leads to the last thing. Seventh, to sing with thanksgiving. Verse 20 says, always giving thanks for all things. Thankfulness is praise. Our singing is to be thankfulness for who he is and what he's done and what he's given. But you see in verse 20 that there's a Jesus-centeredness to this thankfulness. So there's a gospel-centeredness to our singing. I hope you never tire of singing the gospel. We never graduate from it. We're always in need of hearing it, refreshing our faith in it. Martin Luther saw singing as no small part of the Reformation in the 1500s. You may not know that the church, the people of the church from approximately 500 A.D. to 1500 didn't sing. The priests sang. The monks sang. Generally, they sang scripture because the people are illiterate, mostly, and those who aren't illiterate aren't supposed to read the Bible. Well, the monks sang, the priests sang. They were the skilled musicians, vocalists, and the people watched. Luther changed that. He was seeing the gospel as personal, not mediated through any priest. From Jesus Christ, the high priest, to sinners like you and me. And in response, God's people can hear God's word and respond themselves directly to him. So we believe this gospel. We cherish it in our souls We sing of it loudly. We pray our hearts would be in a new way refreshed in it and overcome by it. Overcome with the fact that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And now we're justified by the blood of Christ. We've been saved from the wrath of God. And now that we're saved, now that his wrath is no more, listen to Zephaniah 3. God sings, the Lord your God is in your midst, and he will sing over you with joy. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Only because of Christ. Christ moaned on the cross. He was silent from the cross. He breathed his last that we might live to proclaim his Good news, his attributes, his character, his promises, his plan. We might do it loudly. We might do it together. That we might do it knowing that angels do it. That we might do it knowing that one day we will do this forever and ever. Doing it knowing we were made for this. And Christ died for this. He died to restore us. Not just to experience his presence and not just so we wouldn't go to hell he died so that we would be restored worshipers 
We're the choir. We pray and then we'll sing. Lord, we need your help to